0: Hello again, everyone. Bob Kaler here with another edition of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. As the United Methodist Church begins to separate and churches are discerning whether to disaffiliate or remain with the UMC, one of the things that institutional United Methodist leaders are saying is that, is that there's no reason for churches to leave the UMC because the United Methodist doctrinal standards won't change. They're codified in the Articles of Religion, the Confession of Faith. They can't be altered because of the restrictive rule. And it's true that some who remain in the United Methodist Church will maintain our theological position, at least to a degree. But we also know that from the beginning, the United Methodist Church began embracing liberal theology, particularly among most of the official seminaries, along with many in the the Council of Bishops and denominational agencies. Liberal theology may use some of the same words and concepts as outlined in our doctrinal standards but they mean something very different by them. My guest today is Dr. Roger Olson, who is Emeritus Professor of Theology at George W. Truett Theological Seminary of Baylor University. He's the author of many books, and his latest is Against Liberal Theology Putting the Brakes on Progressive Christianity. Dr. Olson argues that liberal Christianity isn't really Christianity at all, but a different religion altogether. So, discerning and challenging liberal theology, along with critiquing more fundamental forms of Christianity, are keys to what I would say is making Christianity Christian again. Dr. Olson, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's good to be with you.
0: Thank you for joining us. You've written a lot about the history of Christian theology and some of the heresies that have arisen over the course of the last two thousand years. A few years ago, I led my church through one of your other books, Counterfeit Christianity which was an excellent primer on some of the issues faced by the early church. Now you're turning your attention to some more recent challenges to Orthodox Christianity. So what was the genesis of this book? Yeah,
1: you know, that's a good question. It's been simmering in my mind for years, but because I had some liberal colleagues at the university where I was teaching, <clears throat> not the seminary, but the university beyond the seminary, uh, I didn't really want to publish it till after I retired. So uh, they gave me the last semester of my employment there as a sabbatical, and I wrote it during the sabbatical, which was recently in the fall of 2021, so it took that long to get it published in June this year. Uh, it goes back a long ways. Um, I was a member of a, of a liberal Baptist church in Minnesota for a few years because I, I was American Baptist, and um, it was the only American Baptist church in close driving distance, <laughs> and so we joined it, but After a while, I discerned that something was really wrong in that church, and I began to look deeper into it, and I found out that a pastor who had been pastor of it for like 40 years was Walter Rauschenbusch's teaching assistant, and Walter Rauschenbusch, of course, was A well-known leader of the social gospel movement and quite liberal in his theology back in the early part of the 20th century. So I began to put, he's, you know, I began to connect the dots and ask people questions. And I went to the pastor and sat with him for a long time. And it just finally came out that he was just out and out liberal. And so we left the church. And, um, you know, I began to think so many uh, mainline Protestant churches are struggling over issues that are I would call the tip of the iceberg and I wanted to let people know what the iceberg is. So there's all this talk about LGBTQ but you know that's really just the tip of the iceberg. The iceberg has been there for a long time and the iceberg is floating away from classical orthodox biblical Christianity and most of the mainline Protestant seminaries in America and independent seminaries that are closely associated with mainline denominations, <clears throat> excuse me, have been going liberal for a century or more. And I just wanted to warn people against that, because <clears throat> I think a lot of young people fall into liberal theology without really knowing it <clears throat> or intending
0: to. So there are a lot of different different definitions of liberal theology. When we use that term, it can be a kind of a blanket if you're a conservative, for example, you might say that anything related to social justice is liberal, while some liberals would consider themselves centrists and real radicals to be progressive. So how do you define liberal theology?
1: So that's another reason that I wrote the book was that I found myself surrounded in the last oh, what, 30 years now with conservative Christians of various denominations who threw the word liberal around in very loose ways and I wanted to write the book for them to say, no, 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 you've got it wrong. This is liberal theology. It's not just liberal theology isn't just anything you disagree with or that you think is is um, a change in theology. Uh, there can be change, there can be progress in theology, but liberal theology is is a distinct tradition. It's it's not just anything and everything. It's not not what lib- uh, philosophers call indexical. Indexical meaning. Uh, a term that is purely tied to a context. Liberal theology is a tradition, and I identify the tradition in the book back to Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of liberal theology. My focus mainly on his American followers up to today, and um, I name them, I quote from them, and I show that liberal theology is theology that is not really Christian, it's more modern, it's tied to the Enlightenment, and to modern ways of thinking, especially naturalism, the idea that nature is a closed network of causes and effects, and and that modern science is tied to naturalism, so there can be no miracles. If you believe in miracles, you can't be scientifically minded. So a lot of this liberal theology is anti-miracles, anti-anything supernatural, but also tied in with really um, an alternative view of Jesus Christ as an exalted man, a spirit-filled man, but not God incarnate. Uh, they really struggle with the Trinity, most of them, if they believe in the Trinity at all, really see it more as three ways we experience God, not three persons, eternally three persons in God. And I could go on and on, but it's it just isn't anything like Orthodox Christianity, except that it uses the same terminology.
0: You talk in the book about a couple of more recent kind of heroes of liberal theology. These people have been um, raised up a lot in, at least in the last couple of decades in the United Methodist Church by some of my liberal colleagues, John Shelby Spong, Marcus Borg. I remember being at a Marcus Borg lecture once and asking him if he believed in God's judgment. And he said, no, I, I don't. He said, I believe we're all absorbed into God in the end, like a drop of water in the ocean which is really more Buddhism than, than Christianity. So th- th- these, these have been towering figures, influential figures. Um, how, did, how did this yeast get into the mainline church?
1: Yeah, so in the book I propose, um, you know, just my theory of that. I can't prove it right, but my theory is that in the late 1700s and early 1800s, a new movement really got going, and it was called Unitarianism. And there still is a a manifestation of that, a denomination called the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Churches. But way back in the late 1700s in London and in New England, uh, there began to pop up Unitarian churches that were openly, well, openly claimed to be Christian, but openly did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, did not believe in the Trinity, did not believe in hell. They were often labeled free thinkers And a lot of the more educated elite people, especially Protestants, began to filter away from the mainline Protestant denominations into those churches, into Unitarian churches. In fact, whole congregations in New England became Unitarian. Uh, If you drive around New England, a lot of times you'll see First Unitarian Church right in the middle of a village in New England. It used to be First Congregational Church, but sometime in the early 1800s it became Unitarian. And I think what happened is that uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher and others like him, his correlates in America, began to think, how are we going to rescue our churches from that kind of filtering away from losing those people? And what they did, consciously or unconsciously, is simply brought Unitarianism into the mainline Protestant churches so that I argue in the book that these liberal theologians are really Unitarian and just ought to admit it and go join the Unitarian church. But of course, they're not going
0: to do that, right? And and that's something that a lot of a lot of us have said, you know, about what's happening in the United Methodist Church. In some circles, it's hard to paint with a broad brush because there are going to be some who remain in the United Methodist Church who <clears throat> who hold to more orthodox views. But we have seen a sort of a Unitarian trend in uh, a lot of places, particularly in leadership in our in our denomination. Now, one of the things I found interesting as I read this was. <laughs> You define progressive in a different way than most of us, at least in United Methodist circles do. We would say progressives are are extreme liberals, but you you use that term a little bit differently. How do you differentiate between progressive and liberal theologies?
1: Well, teaching um, young seminary students, most of my seminary students for the last 22 years, and before that, college students in a Christian college, uh, in that age group, I found that many were calling themselves progressive Christians, and and I could give you names of of bloggers and people that they they follow online and so forth who talk about progressive Christianity. And in most cases that I know, in in my circles, they're not all the way into liberal theology yet. Um, They think progressive means being open-minded, being loving and kind to uh, LGBTQ people and so forth. And so most of them who call themselves progressive are trying to hold on to basic Christian orthodoxy, but it's filtering away from them. Uh, The process is usually that they begin to think of Christianity mainly as ethics and not doctrine. And so when I try to talk to them about doctrine, I just get a shrug like, oh, well, you know, that's the past. And those are relics of the past. And sure, okay, well, we won't deny them. But our main concern is uh, being like Jesus in accepting people and being inclusive and so forth. So one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity, in my circles anyway, is hearing people say, I follow Jesus, not Paul. And right away, I think, no matter what else they believe or don't believe, I think, uh uh-oh, you're on your way to liberal theology if you're not there already.
0: It's even popular in our circles to hear people say, Well, we don't need the Bible as much because we have Jesus, which seems nonsensical because you wouldn't know anything about Jesus without the Bible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, they don't ever admit it, but what they are doing is the same thing Thomas Jefferson did. They're just not doing it physically. He actually took a scissors and cut out parts of the Bible, the New Testament that he couldn't agree with and created the Jefferson Bible which he called the life and morals and uh, the morals and teachings or teachings and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. But we call it the Jefferson Bible. You know, he just took out everything supernatural and everything he didn't agree with. Well, people are very reluctant to do that in a literal way. So they do it in a hermeneutical way or in terms of interpretation and just deny whatever they find in the Bible that they think isn't consistent with the best of modern culture. And that's the definition of liberal theology. I give it over and over again in the book from a Methodist theologian by the name of Delwyn Brown, who taught at a seminary here in Denver, Colorado. And uh, in a book of conversation and really debate with Clark Pinnock, he says very bluntly that liberal Christians' main authority is the best of modern thought. And that trumps the Bible.
0: You and I were talking before we got on in our correspondence about Billy Abraham, who was a friend of yours, and and um, and, and about you know the uh, Billy's stark defense of of Methodism and the authority of Scripture, and one of the things that Albert Outler came up with that we Methodists have been wrestling with ever since from the late sixties is that whole idea of the Wesleyan Quadrilateral which Outler himself would say, I probably shouldn't have come up with that, because for Wesley, Scripture was always authoritative. But I found it interesting here, in conjunction with what you're saying, here in the Western jurisdiction, many of our bishops would say, well, and many of our clergy, that experience is really primary, which is kind of the hallmark of liberal theology. Uh, If you were to put those things in a rank order, Scripture would not be at the top, but rather experience would be. The what we know now, our modern kind of understanding, uh, that trumps whatever is in scripture.
1: Ironically here, <laughs> because I grew up Pentecostal, and a lot of Pentecostals, in my opinion, that I knew tended to put a different kind of experience, you know, kind of their own, you know, God spoke to me in my dream last night, right. or something like that. That's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, in, in liberal Methodism. Uh, When we talk about them making the quadrilateral and equilateral, where, where experience can even trump scripture or where, you know, the four sides, scripture, tradition, reason, experience are equal, but really experience trumps the rest. Experience there for them doesn't mean that kind of charismatic experience that you might run into among Pentecostals or something. It means for them the best of modern thought. It means whatever modern science, modern philosophy, modern culture, at its best as they understand it, whatever that requires becomes you know, an authority. So I just want to make that distinction clear uh, that experience means something else. It's also interesting that Billy uh, Abraham and I had some conversations about the Wesleyan quadrilateral because I actually like it because as a Baptist, it helps me to bring tradition in. To the theological conversation whereas many baptists say bible only and you know ignore tradition tradition is when our pastor was born or something like that you know <laughs> and that's that's a caricature but you know that they, they don't know very much from their church upbringing anyway about christian tradition so i find the wesleyan quadrilateral helpful but it's not an equilateral and i've always made a point of that that scripture is primary scripture is the ultimate source and norm, whereas tradition is a norm, norm and experience. What is it? Well, it's it's a way of um, of God speaking to us and guiding us, but not in terms of new doctrine or changing doctrine. So I go back to Wesley, and I think Albert Outler was right. Um, I just think that the liberals distorted the Wesleyan quadrilateral and misused it, and Billy Abraham thought so too. So he He wanted to get rid of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and I argue with him that, at least among Baptists, I find it very helpful.
0: That's an interesting perspective, and I think very helpful. Now, you you make the bold statement, and we mentioned this earlier, that liberal Christianity is actually a different religion than Orthodox Christianity, not just a different type of Christianity. And I find it interesting you equate it more with Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian science. Christian offshoots that have cut the cord of continuity with the Christianity of the New Testament, the early church fathers, the reformation, even Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy. And I know that if any of my liberal friends are listening to this, they're probably foaming at the mouth right now. So, um, explain again why you believe that's true.
1: (laughs) It's just so obvious to me that I don't know that it needs any (laughs) explaining. Um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, you know, if you don't believe that God, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate right there, and John Shelby Spong, who you mentioned earlier, has said publicly that he thinks we need to reopen the Arian controversy, that maybe Arius was right. Well, anyone who knows anything about the fourth century and what agonies the church fathers went through, Athanasius being exiled five times for defending what was always believed before him by the heirs of the apostles, that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. And anyone who disagrees with that is just not read you know, Irenaeus or Origen or Tertullian or Athanasius. So, you know, the, the court of continuity runs through history and its belief that Jesus Christ is God and Savior. And the World Council of Churches says Jesus Christ is God and Savior. That's Christianity. Now, some of the liberal theologians will go along with that and will say, yes, Jesus Christ is God and Savior, but then completely undermine it with their explanation of what it means. So, for example, just to take an example, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher said, what it means when we say Jesus is God is that he had perfect God consciousness. Um, in other words, it really came down to his being a sinless human being. And then uh, Albrecht Ritzel, you know, 50 years after Schleiermacher or so, 75 years, said, yeah, well, what it means is when we say Jesus is God, it means he has the value of God for us, but he only pre-existed in the mind of God. So, you know, many liberal theologians will say Jesus is God. We believe Jesus is God. But then when they start explaining it, it, it's, it has no, nothing to do with what the church fathers meant. And what the New Testament says about Jesus Christ.
0: I, I always think of when I hear this, I think of the movie The Princess Bride and Inigo Montoya saying to some people will get this reference, but you know, saying to Fizzini, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and and that really I think describes a lot of what's happening. You know, as as our United Methodist Church is separating ostensibly over issues of human sexuality and theology. As I said in the beginning, some of our institutional liberals are making the case that since our doctrines haven't changed on paper, there's no reason for people to leave. It's all going to stay the same. And so they object to any statement or questions that that would question their commitment to the Bible or to classic Christian theology. But you point out, as you just said, that we use the same language, but we mean different things by them, and there's a major difference between interpreting these texts literally versus symbolically. I thought that was a really important distinction. How do you discern the difference when talking to liberal Christians? Why are those differences important?
1: It's the same thing as talking with Mormons uh, or Latter-day Saints, they wish to be called now. I've been to Brigham Young University three times, for interfaith dialogue events, they actually pay people of many different denominations to come to Brigham Bergen- Young University in Provo, Utah, and they have long weekend conferences. And we uh, give papers and discuss things. We eat together and so forth. Uh, and at the end of the conference, one of them anyway, maybe twice, there were two or three, I think three, Latter-day Saints uh, religion scholars sitting with me. And they asked me, okay, Olson, uh, now what do you think? Are we Christians? Mm -hmm. So I asked, is Jesus God? And they said, well, of course, yes. Yes, we believe Jesus is God. But I knew better than to leave it there. I said, has he always been God? And they said, no. I said, well, then you just took back with one hand what you gave me with the other hand. You don't mean the same thing. I mean, when I say Jesus is God. Because part of God is being eternal. And if he's not always been God, then he's not God. <clears throat> well, we have some really interesting discussions about that. But my, my take on it is they use Christian language. But they don't usually, and it's again, it's hard to generalize even about Latter-day Saints because they're, they don't really have a formal theology as such. But they kind of fell into disagreement among themselves about some things. But... It's, it was clear to me they were using my language, Christian language, but not meaning the same thing by it. So you have to ask questions. You can't just leave it there. You have to go deeper if you really want to know. So just asking someone, do you believe Jesus is God, isn't enough. I'll never forget when I was director of a Christian coffee house uh, in downtown of, a, of an upper Midwest city. And um, there was a cult at that time that doesn't exist anymore. But um, they would dress like Catholic priests and walk around the downtown area of towns all across America and try to recruit people to come to their house. They lived communally. And, you know, I, I was a little suspicious of them, but they hung out at our coffee house and pretended to be Christians. But I found out that they believed in reincarnation. Uh, they believed in all kinds of esoteric, occult things, um, paranormal, psychic phenomena, and so forth, spiritualism. And uh, I found out who their founder was and found out that he was really into things kind of like Rosicrucianism and so forth. And so I gave a paper on a Saturday evening about them. I stood up in front of the crowd in the coffee house. It was announced beforehand. They were sitting right there, two of them, in their black, you know, um, Catholic garb, light garb, and uh, glaring at me like, oh, you know, they wanted to interrupt me, but I didn't let them. So afterwards, they wanted to have a debate. And, and it, it went out onto the sidewalk. It was a summer evening. <clears throat> and pretty soon a man comes pulling up in a pickup truck and stops right in front of us and listens for a while. And then he gets out and he grabs those two cult missionaries by the arm, by the round the neck of me in an in a embrace and says, Do you all love Jesus? And of course they said, Yes, we love Jesus. And I'm going, Wait, 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 that's not enough. <laughs> But then he said, that's all that matters, and popped in his pickup truck and drove off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just left an impression that I was the bad guy.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and I think that's happening a lot here with, with this idea. We just, have, we just have to love like Jesus. We just have to be like Jesus, or we just have Jesus. We don't need the rest of this stuff. But if you unhitch Jesus from that, incarnation from eternity from from the 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 very nature of god as the as the uh as the creed says then jesus becomes a malleable figure that we can do whatever whatever we want with
1: a wax knows that any knave can twist to suit his own countenance as luther said
0: yeah yeah so so these aren't minor things it's not just just give me jesus what are we talking about when we talk about jesus that really is the big question Right. Yeah.
1: Um, And in the book, I show that liberal liberal theologians all basically agree that Jesus was only a human being with a special relationship with God, so close to God, that somehow he, uh, through his influence, can communicate God to us. But they don't believe in the atonement. They don't believe in the return of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in hell and on and on and on.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people are turning to liberal Christianity coming out of a conservative evangelicalism or fundamentalism. So in this world where things are polarized, we tend to think that there are only two poles, right? You you can only, you're either going to be a liberal Christian or, or you're going to be a fundamental Christian. People pejoratively use fundamentalist to talk about anything that might smack of orthodoxy. Just like conservatives would say anything that smacks of social justice sounds like liberalism but you argue that there is a real orthodox ground in between fundamentalism and liberalism that needs our attention how do we avoid how do we avoid going to extremes and for lack of a better phrase make christianity christian again
1: we live in a culture of extremes so when you watch television um i think you can't avoid concluding that talk shows, for example, just to pick one example, talk shows on television are always promoting extremes and almost never having anyone on as a guest who's moderate. Moderate is kind of equated with mediocre. And so it's not interesting. And so we, we live in an age and a culture of political extremes, economic extremes, social extremes. The middle ground is virtually ignored. So it's hard to know how how big it is or how thick it is, how many of us there are, I would put myself in the center of orthodoxy and say I'm a centrist evangelical Orthodox Christian. Uh, but, but, you know, some fundamentalists would say that. Some liberals would say that. They're just wrong. <laughs> you know So here's what I do. I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I think of doctrines as, or let's say beliefs, Christian beliefs as having three categories. There's the area of dogma. Which is really essential. Jesus is God. Trinity. God is Triune. Salvation is by grace alone, etc. Then there's doctrine, which is my denomination's distinctives that I think are important but not essential. And then there's opinion, such things as the order of events of the end times, let's say. Now fundamentalists take everything they believe and put it in the in the dogma category. It's all essentials. That's the hallmark of fundamentalism. Everything they believe is an essential. Well, that's ridiculous, you know, to elevate the rapture, for example, to a status of being an essential. But I know people who would argue with me and have argued with me, if you don't believe in the rapture, you don't believe in the Bible. And I say, well, show it to me in the Bible. I don't see it there. And most Christians have never believed in it. It's not part of Christian tradition. Liberals tend to shift everything into the opinion category so that No doctrine is really essential. I mean, Marcus Borg says in one of his YouTube videos says, all that's really essential for a Christian is to love God and love what God loves. That's it, period. Well, there goes Christian doctrine out the window. So it becomes contentless. It becomes compatible with almost anything and everything, except maybe in the ethical realm. But as far as doctrine, That's a hallmark of liberalism, that they don't really care about doctrine. Now, they might write books of doctrine, like Douglas Otati, a great Presbyterian theologian who came out with a massive book of doctrine recently called Christian Theology for the 21st Century. And it's a great book. I enjoyed reading it, read it twice, underlined a lot of it. But in the end, I thought to myself, I don't find orthodoxy here. I don't find, you know... Classical Christianity here, I find find Christianity reinterpreted just like Schleiermacher did, but with a lot of more recent issues thrown in, like ecology and so forth, and feminism and everything that wasn't around in Schleiermacher's time. But basically, the structure of it is the same as Schleiermacher's. So, you know, it's a tradition that really is contentless in terms of doctrine except opinion. It's a matter of opinion whether you believe Jesus is God incarnate or not. And so
0: on. Yeah, that's a helpful distinction. I I like the idea of, of opinion versus dogma, and and making sure that we know which is which is, is part of the discernment. And classically, for Christians, that was the role of the church is to help to kind of discern those things together. But now we've kind of left it up into the vigil, up to the individual, which is maybe one of the remnants of of Protestantism to some degree. Mm-hmm. Which is
1: one reason why a lot of Protestants have become Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, especially if they're conservative Protestants. I think it's a shame that they feel like they have to go to Eastern Orthodoxy or the Roman Catholic Church to find content and some sense of orthodoxy. I think there are Protestant churches that have held on to orthodoxy, but it's difficult these days. You really have to be vigilant. You really have to be determined to hold on to orthodoxy. And it means that sometimes you have to let people go or you have to separate. And I've told my United Methodist friends, this has happened before. But why do you think this is a new thing? Let's go back to the 1800s and talk about the emergence of the Free Methodist Church in the 1860s. And how about the Wesleyan Methodist Church, which is now the Wesleyan Church uh, in the later 1800s, I think. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, Nazarene's early 20th century emerged out of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and on and on it goes. And so this has happened many times before in all Protestant, mainline Protestant denominations.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about unity, we we often think of that denominationally, but that certainly wasn't the biblical idea of unity. It was unity with the church across time and space. More, I, I think classically, we would say that's Sort of creedal unity, right, and doctrinal unity in in a lot of ways.
1: Yes, confessional unity. I think I see there on your table a book. Is that by Thomas Oden? Uh,
0: yes, actually, yes.
1: On, on your right.
0: Oh, this one. This one is uh, uh, a New Interpreter's Bible, but, um, but didn't
1: Thomas Oden have something to do with that? I no, think. So- that, no.
0: Yeah. But I have, I have his, uh, I have his whole uh, ancient Christian commentary in yeah, my in my church office. Yeah. Yeah. You I know, have, that's... I have all that set, which is, which is marvelous because, because we often think we're, we're always innovating. What's the newest thing, but the, the classical fathers, I did a, a seminar last year at United Theological Seminary where we read uh, early Christian catechesis, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory the Great, you know, things like that. And, I was—I'd never really dived into those, but they were tremendous in terms of thinking theologically. I mean, I think Gregory the Great's Book of Pastoral Rules should be read by every candidate for ordination. Actually, yeah. I think it's. So what I was going to say
1: about Tom Oden is that you know, for me, he—we uh, had our disagreements, but he was you know really a master at showing the, the weaknesses of liberal theology. And in, in getting people to go back to the church fathers and to think along with the church fathers, not on every detail, they weren't right about everything, but the consensus of the church fathers, the reformers even agreed with. I mean, Luther and Calvin did not throw out the ancient Christian consensus when they reformed the church. A lot of people have that mistaken idea that Luther and Calvin changed everything. They did not. And neither did the Anabaptists, Menno Simons and others. So there's just so much misunderstanding. It just breaks my heart. And that's been my life's work is to try to clear up Christian history, Christian theology, historically, what it is classically to be an Orthodox Christian. People just don't understand it.
0: So what advice would you give to the masses of people who are trying to sort all this out? What kind of tools should Orthodox Christian leaders use to help people discern these differences between liberal, fundamental, Orthodox Christianity?
1: Well, if I can promote my own (laughs) (laughs) books,
0: You can, that's why we asked you here.
1: (laughs) Uh, I wrote a book for that purpose called The Mosaic of Christian Belief. That's one that I would recommend um, for people. It's uh, subtitled 20 Centuries of Unity and Diversity. Uh, there's another book called Across the Spectrum by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy that really gets into uh, you know, ha- ha- disagreements among evangelical Christians and talks about Calvinism and Arminianism, but shows, for example, that in all these disagreements, there's an underlying unity. And I would recommend my book and their book, they're similar in certain ways, um, but also my story of Christian theology. Uh it's a massive book, but it, it takes you through the whole history of Christian theology and shows there is a cord of continuity, and that at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, liberals cut that cord. And um, and it's a shame and, and a tragedy. But that you know, if they read the story of Christian theology, what I try to show is that God has never abandoned his church in spite of all of our weaknesses and flaws and divisions and so forth, and that Christians of all traditions agreed on the essentials up until recently.
0: One last question. What do you hope will be the impact of this book against liberal theology on the church?
1: Um, One of the major things that I hope is that it will show people who think they're progressive Christians but aren't liberal yet, that they need to stop in their tracks and look where they're going and say, if I go all the way with Marcus Borg, John Shelby Spong, or these others that I talk about, quote, maybe I won't be a Christian anymore. Maybe I should, at that point, be honest and just say, I'm, I've given up Christianity. This is something else. And do you really want to do that? But that's the trajectory you're on mm-hmm. when you say things like, I follow Jesus, not Paul. You know, be careful, because the end of that path is a cliff called liberal theology, and many people have fallen over it, and it's not really Christianity anymore, so I, it's a warning, that's the subtitle, putting the brakes on progressive Christianity, it's a warning about that, and I hope that it'll have that impact with a lot of seminary students and others, Um, People in the churches, I hope that it gets into the churches and the pastors use it. Like you said, you did counterfeit Christianity. There are similarities between the two books, by the way, and that um, pastors will use it with their congregations and that people in the churches will go, oh, I didn't realize that this is real. Liberal theology is this and back away from it Hmm. and not send their kids to liberal seminaries. (laughs) (laughs)
0: The book is Against Liberal Theology, Putting the brakes on Progressive Christianity. Dr. Roger Olson, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, we want to thank you for joining us here on Holy Conversations. Again, if you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. Follow us on Twitter at pod. We'll see you back here next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.